0: Um, Last week, we pivoted last minute, so it's good to see you all. Sorry for those of you who uh, got mixed up by not having an 11 o'clock service. Uh, If you missed it, you missed it. Like 50 people came to Christ. There were healings and exorcisms, and Benji was speaking in tongues. It was just amazing, and it was like crazy. But anyway, in actuality, it was a great morning. Benji preached on Exodus 16 great message. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. Today we're going to pick up the story in Exodus chapter 17, uh, starting in verse 8. But let me tell you up front the main point I'm hoping you will walk away with and remember today. And this is it. That God is working out his plan to redeem the world through a weak people who are reliant on him in prayer and are reliant on one another in service, in ministry. I think as we work through this story, we're going to see this uh, wonderful truth. So are you in Exodus 17 with me? Uh, we're going we're to skip over a little bit of it here, but I'll tell you when. So pick up the story in verse 8. Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim Then Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now skip down to verse 10, after hearing all about this from, from Moses, Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, they have dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now the next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because uh, the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them to know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. (laughs) You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, Look for able men from the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure, and all the people also will go to their place in peace. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. Yes. Thanks be to God. Have a seat and keep your Bibles open. So, quick reminder of where we are in the story. It's always a good thing to keep the whole in mind. And at the very beginning of the story of the Bible, we, we read of his, his creation of the whole world, his love for all the peoples he's made And then things go wrong very quickly. And God chooses to to set things right by choosing one man in his family, Abraham, to to restore the world. And he tells Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12, he said, I will bless you and make you to be a blessing to all the nations. So from the very beginning, we see that God's heart is for the nations, all the peoples of the world. And at the very end of the Bible, when we get to the book of Revelation, we see this picture, a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne of God and shouting out their praises to the one king of kings. How appropriate on this morning when we were reminded by our friends who went to Liberia that this gospel is for all of the nations, well, here in chapter 17, we come to the first of many battles that Israel is going to uh, engage in, in their time in the wilderness. Um, they've, they've gotten out from under the oppression of the Egyptians. God has led them out of slavery and then bam, they're right back in the conflict and in this battle with the Amalekites, we see that God is with his people and nothing can stand against his, his desire to, to bless this nation of, of Israel. But friends, this does not mean, this is important as we see Israel fighting one nation after another, it does not mean that God is no longer concerned with uh, blessing all the nations and all the peoples. So Deanna sent me a picture this week, um, and I was trying to, it, it baffled me for a moment. By the way, we're, we're looking at this part of the statement. God is working out his plan to redeem the, the world. So she sent me this picture, and I thought, what an interesting room. The curved walls and a pole right in the middle of this space, it's an interesting spot, isn't it? And then I realized what the picture was of. Do you, you see what this, where this is taken from? That's yeah, inside of a cello, right? And so here's, here's another picture of a violin taken an interesting perspective from inside a violin. Well, sometimes we do. We get confused because of a different perspective. And I want to tell you, much of the Old Testament and these parts of the scripture we're in right now, looking at it through Israel's vantage point, um, much of the Old Testament is shot from within uh, this one nation's perspective. But the intention of God is always for all of the instruments to, be, to join in the symphony of his praise. Now, this is emphasized by what immediately comes after the battle with the Amalekites. Did you get this? That Moses gets a, a visit from his father-in-law. And I don't know about you, but when I was first reading this text, it felt like this little family reunion in the wilderness is like, why does this fit into the story? Why did he tell this part? Well, this is really important because it's not just an odd aside. Don't miss the point. Jethro is a Midianite. He's not a Jew. And so he is a representative of the nations. Um... And so look at chapter 18, verse 10 again. After being told of what God has done for his people, Jethro says, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Here's the beginning, trickling in, of of the nations and people acknowledging the god of gods god is working out his plan to redeem the whole world i love peter ens uh, put it like this in his commentary on this section he said the gospel is not nor has it ever nor was it ever intended in either old or new testament to be the private message of any one national identity god's news is for all who acknowledge him Christ has made all nations one by grafting them into Israel. It is not that the nations take on a separate but equal status over against Israel in God's redemptive plan, but all nations may participate fully in that redemption since they can now become part of Israel through faith. They are partakers of that redemption insofar as they acknowledge not simply the God of Israel, but in the new covenant era, God's son. The image that he's playing on, this grafting in, comes uh, straight out of Paul's mouth in Romans chapter 11. And if you remember there, he's talking about um, what what is to come of the nation of Israel and the, the people from all the nations. And Paul uses this image of the one people of God as, a, as an olive tree that God has cultivated. And so Paul says this in, in Romans 11. Some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel that is, have been broken off. They've not believed in God's son, so they're not a part of the tree And you Gentiles who were branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. His point throughout that section is the Jews hold a privileged status. The scriptures came through them. The Messiah came through them. God chose them and used them to bring about his purposes, but they were for far bigger purposes than just the descendants physically of Abraham. It was to bless the nations. So, yes, God is working out his plan to redeem the world, but get this, he's, he's doing this through a weak people who are reliant on him in prayer, in both chapters 17 and 18, uh, one of the a common thread that runs through both of these chapters is the, these stories is Moses' weakness. Did you get that? What made Moses a great leader was not his you know intellectual acumen or his physical strength or any of that stuff, but the the fact that he realized the only hope that he had in the people of God have is the way of reliance. On, on God's strength, God's resources, God's wisdom. So in chapter 17, as, as we see that the people of Israel were attacked brutally by the Amalekites, Moses doesn't say, oh, I've I got to make a plan now. How are we going to beat these guys? Their numbers are bigger than ours. And um, He didn't do that. Instead, he just said, Joshua, get some guys together. You guys go down there. And Moses went up on the mountain to do spiritual battle. Lifting up his hands. Now, lifting up the hands in the Old Testament is a common posture of prayer. You know, we might think of like folding our hands or, you know, kneeling. But in in the Old Testament times, lifting up your hands was a common posture of prayer. This was also a common posture of, of giving a blessing and so is, here is Moses on the top of the hill, lifting up his hands, interceding for the people, extending God's blessing over them. He knows that's their only chance. And when his arms grow tired, things start to turn, and the Amalekites uh, away. And he needs to get those hands up. In his hand is the staff of Moses. That staff was the same staff that he he brought on the plagues against Egypt. That staff was the same one that he held up when the Red Sea were parted. In other words, it's not some magical tool. The staff is an emblem of God's power in his presence. And again, he's he's extending this sign of God's power in his presence over the people doing battle. Again, I love what Peter Enns writes. He said, the focus of the story in chapter 17 is not on the battlefield, but on the hill. The hill is where the battle is truly won. It is not the case that God earlier defeated the Egyptian army, but now the Israelites must muster troops on their own against the Amalekites. The battle is God's here too. They must remember this as they engage more and more frequently in battles with other people. So again and again, God makes it clear that that the glory belongs to him by choosing weak people who will rely on him. Now, we see this again and again through the Old Testament as well. But in the New Testament, the the example par excellence of this is the Apostle Paul himself. Remember, he, he wrote in 2 Corinthians about the thorn in the flesh Now, we don't know what that thorn in the flesh is that he had, but he hated it. He he wanted it to be gone, and he prayed for God. Take this sign, uh, this reminder of my weakness away. And yet, the answer uh, came this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, that that sounds good, and it will preach well, but can I just say... uh, I don't like the feeling of being weak. I don't like the feeling of people knowing my weaknesses. It feels vulnerable. feels exposed. I try to cover my weaknesses, but time and again, the scriptures show us that, that your place of weakness is generally the place where God will meet you and the place where God will use you most. Uh, I've to be honest, I feel like I've been fighting enemies of anxiety and fear this week in my own life. At times it's left me feeling really discouraged. And I assume that you have your own enemies that you've been fighting this week. I don't know what they are. Or perhaps your mind has been locked on the battlefield that you see people that you love fighting on. Um, Maybe it's your kids or grandkids or dear friends. My natural response to this in terms of my own enemies that I'm fighting against or people that I love and engaged in the battle is, well, I want to strategize again. I want to fight with them. I want to envision a way of escape. But often our own wisdom, our own resources, again, our own strength are simply no match for the battle before us. But this passage reminds me, and hopefully reminds us that there's something else we can do, we can embrace our weaknesses and go to God in prayer. Like Moses, we can stretch out our arms over the battlefield and appeal to his power in his presence. We have something greater, friends, than the rod of Moses we have the cross itself, the greatest emblem of God's victorious power, the greatest reminder that God is with us and for us. And we, we cling to this as we think about the battlefields of our lives. And so I'd like to ask you to engage in a little exercise with me, if you will. I'm not quite done, but um, we'll, let's just pause. And I'd like you, us to pray. And I'd like us to think of that battlefield maybe in your life or again in somebody else's life that you've been praying for, they're in it, in the thick of it. And if you would just humor me, stretch out your arms uh, above as Moses did as a way of appealing to the presence and power of God in these areas. And Lord, we just want to ask you that you would remind us the the truth of what we learned as preschoolers, that uh, we are weak, but you are strong. Help us, Lord, against our enemies, whether they be addictions to substances or pornography or doubt or despair or crippling grief or unwanted sexual attractions or battalions of shame and guilt. We plead with you, Lord, and appeal to your kindness that you would give us victory and endurance and peace and joy as we live in reliance on you. We're trusting in you, Lord, for you are our only hope. Amen. Amen. Well, we're almost done here. God is working out his plan to redeem the world through a weak people who are reliant on him in prayer and are reliant on one another in service. We get these beautiful pictures of this in, in Exodus 17 and 18 as, as Aaron and her come alongside Moses and hold up his hands when he's tired and weary. I want to ask, are you tired and weary? Uh, maybe this would be a good Sunday right after we're done to go to a prayer team and let them act as Aaron and her for you as you sit down on the rock of Christ and just allow them to hold up your arms in prayer for whatever it is you're going through. But we also get this wonderful picture of, of this and the advice Moses gets from his father-in-law, Jethro. Morning till evening, he's laboring, doing the work of the Lord, and Jethro comes to him as only a father-in-law can do and say, you're doing it all wrong, son, now, I gotta say, if I were Moses, I probably would have responded differently than he. I probably would have said, Pops, I realize you missed a lot of the story, you just got here. You probably don't, I don't know how to say this, but I'm kind of a big deal. Uh, you know, I've, I've been splitting seas apart and sending plagues and all this stuff. In God's name, he chose me to be his intermediary. And, uh, you know, I'm working hard for God and no one else can do what I'm doing. Uh, thank goodness Moses was more humble than I am. And he listened. He listened to the advice of his father-in-law to do less. Not just to do less, but to give some of that power away to other people. He, he was told to rely on other people to share the work. He was told that you are not God. There's a limit to your strength and ability. And there's no shame in your reliance on other people. And so Moses listened to the advice, and he gave some of his responsibilities to others. And I want to tell you, this was not shirking his responsibilities. It was sharing his responsibilities. And we can do the same. I want to end by telling you a story of one of my my spiritual heroes. When I was in my 20s, I, I first read Henry Nowen. And cut my teeth on a lot of his books. And um, if you're not familiar with Henry Nouwen, he was a Catholic priest, Dutch uh, priest, who was also uh, an academic. He, he spent years as a professor in really prestigious institutions like Notre Dame and Yale and Harvard. You get the point. He was kind of a muckety muck. And uh, at one point, he was feeling like Moses, just burdened and tired and weary and kind of hollowed out inside. And so he got a call to go from these lofty academic institutions to go serve at a community called Daybreak for mentally handicapped individuals and to be the priest there on that site. And so he did that. And at one point, not long after he was called to be the priest at Daybreak, he got an invitation to go speak to a group of pastors and priests about the, the nature of uh, Christian ministry in the 21st century. Now, this was in the late 80s. And, and Nowen decided that he would take uh, that opportunity, that he said yes to it. And so he was going to go speak in front of all these people in Washington, D.C., about the nature of Christian ministry. Well, as he laid out in this book, which is an incredible book, um, not just because it's short and has big words in it, but it's just profound, Uh, but this is my kind of book. Um, He talked about the dangers uh, for Christian leaders of wanting to feel relevant and competent and all that kind of stuff. And uh, he wrote about all what he he talked about in Washington in this book. But what I want to read to you is the epilogue. Because in the epilogue he tells that he said yes to the speaking engagement, but he decided that he would go with someone else, since Jesus sent his followers out two by two to rely on one another. And so Henry Nowen, this brilliant guy, took a guy named Bill Van Buren, who was one of the mentally handicapped people at Daybreak Community, to go share this task with him. So he writes this. Writing these reflections was one thing. Presenting them in Washington, D.C., was quite another. When Bill and I arrived at Washington Airport, we were taken to the Clariton Hotel in Crystal City, a collection of modern, seemingly all glass high rise buildings on the same side of the Potomac River as the airport. Both Bill and I were quite impressed by the glittering atmosphere of the hotel. We were both given spacious rooms with double beds, bathrooms with many towels, and cable TV. On the table in Bill's room, there was a basket with fruit and a bottle of wine. Bill loved it. Being a veteran TV watcher, he settled comfortably on his queen bed and checked out all the channels with his remote control uh, device. But the time for us to bring the good news together came quickly. After a delicious buffet dinner in one of the ballrooms decorated with golden statues and little fountains, Vincent Dwyer introduced me to the audience At that moment, I still did not know what doing it together with Bill would mean. I opened by saying that I had not come alone, but was very happy that Bill had come with me. Then I took my handwritten text and began my address. At that moment, I saw that Bill had left his seat, walked up to the podium, and planted himself right beside me. It was clear that he had a much more concrete idea about the meaning of doing it together than I did. (laughs) Each time I finished reading a page, he took it away and put it upside down on a small table close by. I felt very much at ease with this and started to feel Bill's presence as a support. But Bill had more in mind. When I began to speak about the temptation to turn stones into bread as a temptation to be relevant, he interrupted me and said loudly for everyone to hear, I've heard that before. (laughs) He indeed had, uh, he had indeed, and he just wanted the priests and ministers who were listening to know that he knew me quite well and was familiar with my ideas. For me, however, it felt like a gentle, loving reminder that my thoughts were not as new as I wanted the audience to believe. (laughs) Bill's intervention created a new atmosphere in the ballroom, lighter, easier, more playful. Somehow Bill had taken away the seriousness of the occasion and had brought to it some homespun normality. As I continued my presentation, I felt more and more that we were indeed doing it together. And it felt good. When I came to the second part and was reading the words, the question most asked by the handicapped people with whom I live is, are you home tonight? Bill interrupted me and said, that's right. That's what John Smeltzer always asks. <laughs> again and again, there was something disarming about his remarks. Bill knew John Smeltzer very well after living with him in the same house for quite some years. He simply wanted people to know about his friend. It was as if he drew the audience towards us, inviting them into the intimacy of our common life. After I finished uh, reading my text and people had shown their appreciation, Bill said to me, Henry, can I say something now? My first reaction was, oh, how am I going to handle this? He might start rambling and create an embarrassing situation. But then I caught myself in my presumption that he had nothing of importance to say and, and said to the audience, will you please sit down? Bill has some, a few words he would like to share with you. So Bill took the microphone and said with all the difficulties he has in speaking, last time when Henry went to Boston, he took John Smeltzer with him. This time, he wanted me to come to him, with him to Washington, and I am very glad to be here with you. Thank you very much. That was it, and everyone stood up and gave him a warm applause. As I walked away from the podium, Bill said to me, Henry, did you like my speech? <laughs> very much, I answered. Everyone was really happy with what you said, and Bill was delighted. As people gathered for drinks, he felt freer than ever. He went from person to person, introduced himself, and asked how they liked the evening and told them all sorts of stories about his life and daybreak. I did not see him for more than an hour. He was too busy getting to know everybody. The next morning at breakfast, before we left, Bill walked from table to table with his cup of coffee in his hands and said goodbye to all those he knew from the evening before. It was clear to me, that he had made many friends and felt very much at home in these, for him, so unusual surroundings. As we flew back together to Toronto, Bill looked up from the word puzzle book that he takes with him wherever he goes and said, Henry, did you like our trip? Oh, yes, I answered, it was a wonderful trip and I am so glad you came with me. Bill looked at me attentively and then said, and we did it together, didn't we? Then I realized the full truth of Jesus' words, where two or three meet in my name, I am among them. In the past, I had always given lectures, sermons, addresses, and speeches by myself. I had often wondered how much of what I said would be remembered. Now it dawned on me that most likely much of what I said would not be long remembered, but that Bill and I doing it together would be not easily forgotten. I hoped and prayed that Jesus, who had sent us out together and had been with us all during the journey, would have become really present to those who had gathered in the Clarendon Hotel in Crystal City. As we landed, I said to Bill, Bill, thanks so much for coming with me. It was a wonderful trip. And what we did, we did together in Jesus' name. And I really meant it. Friends, I want so much for us to be a type of community that, that knows what Bill knew and what Henry Nowen learned. And that is, it's, it's so good to do things together in the name of Jesus because God is redeeming this world. He's doing his work and he's looking for people who know they're weak, who will rely on him in prayer and will rely on one another in ministry and service. And so it's a fitting that we come to the end of, of this text thinking about this and come to this table because this table, you're only qualified for it if you admit your weakness. You only can come to this table rightly when you acknowledge your neediness for God. You only understand what this table is all about when you realize that the Son of God gave up his power and came In vulnerability, and weakness and gave himself for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. And the last thing I want to say about this table is no one ever comes to the Lord's table by themselves. We come as a church family. And so I want to ask today, we've done this before but not often, uh, no one comes to the table by themselves today. Uh, I'd like to say don't just come with your spouse too. Maybe look around for somebody else who may be here by themselves or just behind you in line and make sure that we come in groups of two, three, or even more to to recognize that God is with us and he's calling us to serve him together in his strength, in his mercy. So may it be, Lord, in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's come and worship at the table.